Welcome and happy to see you all. Some of you I know already from met last year, some not yet. And I hope you can hear me because there's no microphone. And first of all, I would like to thank Bruce for the invitation to take part in this group show and Tetui Hirani for the hospitality. It's been really very intense and great and also glad to be here at ELAM now and thank you Peter for the possibility. Um, and I was really fortunate to come back because I got a, a support by FRAME, uh, the Contemporary Art Finland, to come back and only one year after I've been here before. So um, I was at the Tefarihera residency uh, in Wellington that took uh, six months and that was really one of the most intense and inspiring six months of my life, I would say. And I was there with my family, my, bro my, uh, my um, uh, son and um, our, my husband, Petri, who, with whom I also collab collaborate. And I would like to start uh, to speak a little bit also about the background before I start to speak uh, about the demounting Louis Agassiz project so that it's kind of um, shows also what, what is my inspiration and um, while I was in Haiti, uh, January, for six weeks, making a project there, um, I saw the film by Nina Simon and there was a scene that um, I rewind and listened again because I kind of could relate to it and I thought I want to share this, uh, what she said and maybe some of you would relate to that as well. And she said, uh, basically about what, what is an artist's duty. And she says, the artist's duties, what I'm concerned is to reflect times. I think this is true about painters, sculptors, poets, musicians, but I'm concerned it is their choice, but I choose to reflect the times and the situations I find myself. That to me is my duty. And at this crucial time of our lives, when everything is so desperate, when every day is a matter of survival, I don't think you can't help but be involved. That to me is the definition of an artist. And now to give a kind of context, I would like to <coughs> say a little bit about my background. So I was um, born in Switzerland uh, to a Haitian mother, Monique, and my Swiss father, who met in New York because my mother's family immigrated to New York um, from Haiti because of the dictatorship. Then I grew up in a really multicultural family and we have members from about 10 different countries so I really grew up in, in this way. Um, and at the beginning I was more interested in becoming a graphic designer so that's my background. I studied that in Switzerland, in Zurich and uh, worked there for some years and then I heard about a place called Fabrica, Research and Design Center by Benetton in Italy, which is really a very diverse community and I decided to apply and I was lucky to got, get uh, accepted and the year scholarship started in 2000, end of 2000. And that's where I met my, my husband, husband Petri and he was in the media department, new media department and after one year, I, uh, we moved back to, he uh, to Helsinki, and there I immediately applied to the University of Art and Design to make my master's degree. And luckily, that also just worked out. Also, being from Switzerland, not being part of the European community, this 
was for me also important to have like an official status and I was re kind of felt I would like to continue and this is where I started uh, my artist practice so my final work was an art, was an art project and then uh, I could start with the demanding Louis Agassiz and how this started uh, it uh, was the first project that I made that I felt is my language, let's say, and I uh, made a project called Shooting Back, the Reflections on Haitian Roots. And that led then to, to what I will talk mostly about. And, and this is the first project where um, I kind of, it was, which was about a critical work, which is about history and colonialism. And it criticizes some individuals who contributed to the historical and social conditions in Haiti and uh, from the 15th century up to the 20th century and who made it what it is today, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. The work consists of portraits of conquerors. Conqueror Christopher Columbus, the former Haitian dictator François Papadoc Duvalier, and Jean-Claude Babydoc Duvalier. Baby Doc uh, was called Baby because he was only 19 when he had to exceed his father's job as a dictator, so to say. And a bit before I made this series, I had certainly the idea to work with a, with a, with a staple gun, as a draw with a staple gun. I, I don't really know why, but uh, I decided to test it, and after that I realized this is really like a weapon. So I, I realized I don't... I cannot just realize whatever with this technique, so this is how I started to work on that series. Um, and as you can see, every, every portrait is different, and I worked with, uh, with abandoned wood, also for me symbolically uh, reminding of material that's been used to build boats to escape from Haiti. And then in 2006, I got to read a book about Swiss involvement in the slave trade that uh, was written by Hans Fassler. So there are not many books about this topic. It's the first, book, uh, first time that I read about its colonial history that has not been taught at school, even though it's quite obvious with its chocolate and textile industry to name just a few, which is still very prominent. And it struck me and I decided to contact the author the historian and anti-racist activist Hans Fassler from St. Gallen in Switzerland. And I wanted to meet him to tell him about my Shooting Back series because also Haiti played a role in this book. And that was the moment when we became friends as well and he kept on informing me, he, me about his activities. And in his book there was this uh, chapter uh, about Louis Agassiz and at the time, the life and work of him have been intentionally embellished. He has mainly been presented as a prominent zoologist, paleontologist, and glaciologist, and director of academic institutions, both in his country of origin, Switzerland, and his adopted country, the USA, where he emigrated in 1846. And there he became one of the most influential races of the 19th century and likewise a pioneering thinker of apartheid. And in 2007, 
The bicentenary of Louis Agassiz's bird was celebrated without a word about those contributions he made in the maintenance of slavery to racism, racial discrimination, and xenophobia, which have been consciously and wrong, or unconsciously ignored in Switzerland. And that is how Hans decided to launch the international campaign called Demanding Agassiz. And it began to open the eyes of Swiss public and expose Louis Agassiz's involvement in crimes against humanity. He then invited me to be part of the committee, which consisted of about uh, 15, 17 persons, journalists, historians, artists, and um, anti-racist activists. And um, as part of it, yeah, he started this committee with historians, politicians, artists, and activists from Africa, Europe, and America, from the Americas. The campaign was about lightening up the dark side of Louis Agassiz while taking away one of the mountains, Agassiz Horn, that was named after the Swiss Alps, uh, named after him in the Swiss Alps, and to rename it after Renti, who was one of the enslaved Congolese-born Africans who was photographed by Agassiz to scientifically prove the inferiority of the black race. Here you see the daguerreotypes that were made in March 1850. And on the top, you see Renti from the front and from the side. And below was his daughter, Delia, and another uh, other person called Jack. And, um, what happened is those daguerreotypes were forgotten in a, a Peabody Museum's attic and noticed only in 1975 and were then um, first time shown in the Peabody Museum. And the campaign was, a, um, yeah, so. And Agassiz's broader plan was to, with these photographs, was to establish the visual uh, archive of all the racial types on earth with special attention to blacks and their mixed descendants. His plan grew out of Agassiz's deep commitment to defending creationism, polygonism, at the same time as he is opposed to hybridism with the uh, American context during the years preceding and immediately uh, following the Civil War, which was 1861 to 1865. And here um, I would like to show a map. At this point, it is also important to mention that the 3,946 meter peak Agassiz Horn on the border between the Swiss cantons Agassiz and Bern had not been named after the glaciologist by Tank Full Public and um, but that has been dedicated to Agassiz by a group of his friends on a mountaineering expedition that Agassiz had himself led into the area in the 19, uh, 1840s. Because at the, that time, many people thought that it was like an honorly given uh, name to that mountain. And this is how I got involved in, in, two, in 2008, that was. Uh, that I uh, decided to make a shooting back portrait of Agassiz, kind of extending this, this shooting uh, back series. And then um, 
afterwards I decided I feel I felt like I would like to do an action and, and that's how I started to plan the action uh, the intervention to go physically to the mountain and just actually rename rename the mountain and then I designed the design with a short text about what this is about and started to plan um, and, and found out quite soon that you have to be able to, to climb. You have to know how that works. So I was living in flat Finland and had no chance to learn how to climb. So the only way of getting there was through the air. Um, so that is a, that's an image. And I did find an, a helicopter company who was okay doing that with me. Uh, I told them I'm an artist uh, and I want to go to that place and um, bring a sculpture there and take it uh, back again. Uh, well, so I didn't really tell them what is it about and then we made a, a press release before I went there and what happened is I got the, uh, well of course in this press release it, it told what it is about and then the newspaper printed it and he could read, the helicopter company could read what it is about and they told me um, that they don't want to, they want to cancel that that uh, appointment, let's say, because they felt this is, uh, has nothing to do with art, this is like a political uh, thing, so they don't want to get involved. So that was very surprising and I was like, um, I, I didn't know what to do and then I had to find a new company and finally I did uh, manage to get hold of another company that didn't mind about that and were, were not afraid. And then the intervention was only a part of a whole. I also started a petition website, uh, which is called rentihon.ch, which is still online, that people from around the world could sign and tell uh, what they feel about this idea. And it became an open discussion, and the page is still, yeah, is still online. Um, but we're um, still on it, as it, because the renaming didn't happen, but we, we just don't yet give up. And um, if I would like to show now a short, short uh, um, sequence from the intervention. And then you can see the whole at the tattoo. You can go to the tattoo. <laughs> So I will stop now, because I don't have so much time. Uh, so this is the website. And I also made this drawing of Renti, kind of dressing him back up, because all the posts had to pose without clothes. And this is just that you see the installation, and in the middle there, there was a, a letter um, a letter that all the communes and also the UNESCO World Nature Heritage Committee received that tells about why the mountain should be renamed. And for instance, Kofi Annan is also part of that committee and he got a letter and, and the foundation of his also uh, responded. So all those parts are part of that installation, that, which is now shown here at the Gyasma Museum of Contemporary Art in Helsinki. What was interesting was um, that I was contacted by a woman uh, who said that she's a descendant of Renti, 
over there and uh, that was really um, something I couldn't have expected so we started the conversation and she supported of course this idea of this renaming and what was uh, Beautiful is that she came with her daughters to the opening of the ex ex exhibition uh, in the mountain, uh, which was um, basically a little bit of a compromise because the name of the mountain was not changed, but the mayor, uh, Mr. Schlappi from Grindelwald, offered this possibility to make a show about Agassiz's racism. And then they came to the opening and she could tell something about Renti because before we just had this photograph and don't know anything about the person. And also we've been in contact since then. What was also the case is that Hans Fassler is next to me on the right side. He also invited descendants of Agassiz family that lives in Switzerland and um, they didn't want to come. So they actually wanted to uh, say that also they said that they would like to sue us because of this uh, exhibition and because of spreading this knowledge about Agassiz, but it hasn't happened. <laughs> and I would like to say something about uh, Agassiz, uh, what he did in the States. When Agassiz came to the US, he was engaged in the debate over race initially taking sides with the polygonists, that is, those who believe that humankind was not one, but rather was formed out of separate species involving more than one divine creation, and later embracing the theory of degeneration, which held that mixed races did not carry the best characteristics of their forebears, but rather that misagation resulted in degeneration and infertility. In, uh, it is important to bear in mind that Agassiz became involved in the race debate in the American context where he defended both abolition and racial segregation. His arrival in Brazil with the Thea expedition um, coincided with the final episodes of the Civil War and when concerned about the future role of persons of African descent in American society was a burning issue. So in 2009, my work then continued in Brazil where I was in a residency uh, with my husband and I was interested to research new work because of Agassiz's his, uh, expedition that he had led in 1865-66 and after this year long expedition at least two, on two places, uh, at least two places were named after him. And one of the projects there was to extend the somatological and phrenological racial photographic collection with nearly 200 images that he owned, uh, owned uh, that are today owned by the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology at Harvard University nowadays. And these photographs are a valuable visual record that sheds important light not only on the history of anthropology, but also on 19th century studies on race. Until today, this collection remains for the most part unpublished to this day, and surprisingly little known, these photographs represent one of the most extensive sets of pictures portraying the diversity of the Brazilian population during the second half of the 19th century. 
And uh, here you see, um, I could maybe say something about these collections. This is a series that was made in Rio um, by, um, com he commissioned uh, Augusto Stahl, which was the, um, the, like the main photographer of, of the, uh, uh, the king at the time. And um, these were photographs that were made by one of Agassiz's assistants in Manaus. And he didn't know how to photograph, so the quality of the pictures, those ambrotypes are totally different. And, um, and this was more uh, uh, indigenous population also with, um, with the Chinese influence. And the white people were represented like this, as Apollo Belvedere figures. Also, no white people were photographed naked. Um, <clears throat> and during the residency, I met history professor Maria Helena Machado of the University of Sao Paulo, who is specialized in Brazilian slave history. She asked if I would like to collaborate with her on a new book, project that would be about those photo collections, and um, she would be interested to, for me to collaborate and do something with this uh, photographic um, collection. And since I was um, invited back uh, in 2010 to produce the projects that I researched during 2009 for the Sao Paulo Biennial, I gave, uh, this gave us the opportunity to receive funding to realize this book and um, to make this intervention, Louis Hu, what you should know about Louis Agassiz, which uh, you see here, that's such a couple of images. Um, this was in Rio, and I went to a place called Plaza Agassiz, and the idea of becoming a messenger from the early days, telling basically facts of Agassiz, who he was, what he did in Brazil, came because the people didn't know who is this Agassiz. So that was how this idea came. And also that was the starting point for this slowly growing portrait series, the Mixed Traces portrait series where I'm standing in front of natural features named after Agassiz. And this is the Furnas de, Aga, uh, Furnas de Agassiz in Rio, um, at the edge to the forest. And, um, and just about the book also. For the book, we managed to select 40 photographs from the photo collection, most of which were never uh, published before, and this book reflects upon how these images associated to thoroughly outdated beliefs and scientific knowledge, and it continues to hunt not only visual culture, but also the politics of memory and forgetting in the 21st century, in unveiling the context of, um, involved in the creation of this collection. This work seeks to propose new ways of reading and of coming to terms with this significant yet disturbing collection of images. The book's greater aim is to in, invert the focus in reading these images, finally allowing for the men and women who sat as models in the name of science nearly a century and a half ago to stare back in a gaze moved by their own history, action, and transformation. And working with these photographs, I started the first ongoing self-portrait series that I just mentioned in the somatological manner in front of those 
features. This is um, extended in Switzerland, in his hometown. Uh, Neuchâtel, that is uh, Agassiz Rock, and when one would cl look closer, there was his name engraved and colored in red, Agass Louis Agassiz. And that was during the time when I had the artist residency in Switzerland, my first time uh, that was, and that was 2013. And at the same time, I was invited to Edinburgh to have an uh, exhibition as well. And I told my friend I'm arriving there, who lives there, and he said that, oh, I was about to get in touch with you because I just noticed this Agassiz rock in a nearby park, literally 10 minutes away from the art space. So. Um, I decided then, of course, to, to uh, extend this series. And it was a bit interesting because, you know, there's a place where people take their dogs walking. So while I was there, people passed by. And I just try not to uh, be distracted. And through my naked body, I claim the space of representation and the right to construct narratives that challenge and question the assumptions of Agassiz's theories. My intense stare and the full length long shots disrupt the erotic inspection of the body represented in Agassiz's images. My self-representation with those natural features suggests new kind of renaming and unveiling, one which positions the creolized subject as part of the process of human history. And this, I would like to say, this is the photograph I made last year, 2000. 15, and, and I'm really happy that Max Bellamy is here, um, who, who was there as well. He uh, uh, was my first camera on the Karakia film, and I'm really happy that you live in Auckland now, <laughs> and that you're here. And in summer 2013, as I uh, earlier mentioned, um, was my first solo exhibition in Switzerland, called Louis Agassiz's uh, Visitation. And following, uh, wait a minute, I just, just want to say something more. Yeah, this is, uh, I got mixed up in the, in the slides, but this is a short glimpse of the, this Louis Hu intervention in Brazil. I just make it um, short. So, yeah, when I had this uh, residency in Switzerland, I uh, had the opportunity to, for the first time, collaborate with the actor um, Thomas Goetz on the right and yeah, left is Agassiz. And it was interesting how I met him. He was at a party of my sister's friends and we saw this person over there and we felt he looks like Louis Agassiz. And then uh, we didn't know at the time that he's a theater actor. Uh, and then only three years later, I was invited to his hometown and he came to my mind again. And I, call, I asked if, I would, if he would be interested to collaborate and perform as Louis Agassiz. And then he said, well, yeah, he has performed as uh, uh, Napoleon in the past, so he would take on this this role as uh, Agassiz. And, um, and then um, I invited Hans Barth, who was also a member of the Demanding Louis Agassiz Committee, if you would like to write a script about what would the Agassiz say today. And his, his idea was that he got disturbed 
in his, you know, in the death, so he had to come back and reincidate himself. So this rest in peace metaphor came up, and um, during the opening of the show, that performance was uh, live carried out, and the people sit on this. Um, wait, you will see it later on. Sit on the rentihome uh, structure. And, and that was also symbolically quite interesting. I feel that the people, like about 60 people, could climb the mountain and listen to what Agassiz had to say. And, and that video is also in the Tetui, Tetui exhibition. Here it's just a couple of images from the exhibition. And these are amber types that. Um, uh, Borupetalin made for me, he's from Slovenia. And it was for me important to do this in a way, to kind of put him in the front in front of the lens to change this um, direction. But also standing side by side, twisting the time. It's a bit dark. These are staple images of places named after him in the States. And on the left side is the Agassiz Column in Jesuit Park in California. And on the right side, it's uh, the Agassiz Bassin. On the left, you see the small postcards. This was the first, first time that I show, showed this work in Switzerland in its entirety until then. And then, last year, I was able to be here every six months. And this was, as I said earlier, one of the most intense time, times ever. And it was about 150 years ago when German geologist Julius von Haast ventured into the Southern Alps on New Zealand's South Island and named Agassiz Glacier, the body of the ice moving into Kaa, Roi Mata Ohine Huka Tere, Franz Josef Glaser. And when in the 1860s von Haas explored New Zealand for coal fields and gold fields, examined geological structures with regard to rail ton railway tunnels, he also visited, um, he did so in the interest of British and European colonial society. This was when he named over 100 places after British, German, Austrian, French, Australian, New Zealand, Danish, and Swiss scholars, poets, sons of emperors, explorers, and scientists, and also after himself and his son. He did so to endear himself to the name bearers and to solidly locate New Zealand within the white European culture. He did so in the context of British land seizure during time of the New Zealand wars, at the peak of which 18,000 British troops, supported by artillery, cavalry, and local militia, fought against some 4,000 Maori warriors. Interestingly, Louis Agassiz had a cousin, Alfred Agassiz, who immigrated to New Zealand and married uh, into a Maori Fano, having descendants carrying his name now here. And he uh, was living in Opotiki. And that is on my next visit. I hope I would really like to meet people 
from that uh, family to kind of speak to them. After giving, after giving the first artist talk at the Massey University, um, I met Caroline McQuarrie, who's from the South Island, who some of you probably know. And she immediately said that she knows uh, um, this person called Paul, and he's a, a descendant of the mountaineer who took von Haas to the area at the time, and that I should talk to him, of course, from the Night Tahoe Iwi. Uh, so I did contact him and on the same day he responded and I, I said that I explained about that I would like to go to this glacier and, and um, do an intervention and unname that place. And to him, he then, he then said that he, he cannot perform a karakia, it's not everybody can do that. So he introduced me to uh, Kara Edwards. And I told her also about the story that I would like to travel to the glacier to make that intervention to symbolically unname the glacier and to free the glacier from its association to Agassiz. And she was right away also interested to join me to the place and to perform this karakia. Um, and then this kind of ex intense exchange started with uh, phone calls and emails. And then unfortunately she wasn't able to come with me uh, because it was like end of the summer, so we had to start to hurry up, and then she was traveling abroad, and this uh, promised to find somebody who could go with me. And, but it, take, it took a really long time, um, because she had her brother-in-law in mind, Jeff, who you saw, or uh, you will see soon, uh, but he doesn't have a phone and no email, so living on the West Coast, so it took about two months for her to get back to me with uh, saying that he's interested to meet me. Um, and so I had to kind of organize everything and knew, okay, he wants to meet, but then um, we arrived on Saturday and she told him we come on Friday and I was not sure if he's there. So we end up going to his house and seeing light at the window and okay, knocking the door really loud, but no reaction whatsoever. And then she gave me a phone number of an uncle to call in an emergency, and so I thought, this is an emergency, and um, there was no reception whatsoever in that area. And I decided, okay, let's go. I didn't want to leave that area. Go. I didn't want to go back to Fox Glacier just yet, and said uh, to Tom, who was uh, helping me with the photograph of me in front of the Agassiz range, to um, knock on people's doors to use their phone. So first place didn't react, lights were on, nobody reacted, so it was already 10 o'clock. So the next house, I saw a woman sitting at the sofa and she opened the door and it ended up being the uncle's house. <laughs> and he was there and we could speak together and he promised to go there in the morning to check him, uh, go find Jeff and he was uh, then, would then call me back and that's what luckily happened. So he said, yeah, he's, he was home but he didn't hear the knocking. So uh, yeah, that was, it was very, uh, yeah, In, like, yeah, I, I, and I, at the, all that time I did feel calm. I don't know why, I just somehow felt it, somehow it will work out. And um, what was interesting is during that whole process of preparation, 
I was in touch also with officials of Night Dahu, and they actually said, knowing this story, that they would support uh, the idea of finding appropriate Maori place names for those two sites, because they didn't have Maori names yet before. So many of those places that uh, von Haast named had already places before. And that's why it also was an unnaming and not a renaming. Mm. And also, the, uh, of course, a renaming one could have proposed immediately a name, but somehow it didn't felt that that should be the case in this, this situation. So it was not the same as in the Swiss context. And since Cara and uh, me never met personally, uh, I was really uh, happy to be in touch with her. And now on this Friday, we will have our first meeting in uh, Wellington. I'm looking really forward to meet her. And um, here are a couple of images of the intervention. And I'm like uh, wit witnessing this. And actually here is the Agassiz Glacier. So we were not able to go on top because of the weather problematics. What was, was possible is to fly over. So the Agassiz Glacier is between the Fox and Franz Josef Glacier. And to conclude today, um, oh yeah, maybe I can say that, but uh, some, show some images of that small exhibition in Wellington. There I decided not to have any subtitles and instead have the, um, his words separate on the wall and the translation. And I made also a poster, takeaway poster, which um, was about, um, I wanted to do this because just at the time there happened that massacre in Charleston in the church where nine African-Americans were killed by, by uh, this racist. And it came to me because Hans Fassler wrote the letter, where, uh, email where he made an example of what uh, Agassiz was lecturing around the country, exactly also in this Charles, Charleston, for instance, claiming that the intelligence of the African person is to be compared with the se uh, seven months old fetus in the stomach of a white woman. So that kind of things he teached people. And this just, I wanted to make this example, uh, like show it this way to kind of see, show what the impact, what that impact is today still. And, uh, and then I also felt that I would like to make a new poster for this um, Tetui exhibition, so um, in the front there are some here, you can take them. And I would like to say something to the image that um, is not Photoshop, so that happened in 1906, an earthquake uh, in San Francisco, dropped his statue down, and yeah, so he was down under, really, literally. And I felt this good image for, the, for that exhibition, Agassiz Down Under. And this, I found images from the different perspectives of, of that same situation. Okay, time is running out. Uh, but to conclude, there are over 60 places all over the world and in our solar system on the moon and on Mars. 
that bear Agassiz's name. <laughs> and to date, only one of these places have been renamed. It's the Agassiz Elementary School in Cambridge, which was renamed after its African-American school principal, Maria Louise Baldwin, in 2002 already. And that, what is very nice is this was suggested by a student, by an African-American student, and they did make that change. And incidentally, Baldwin was the first African-American female principal in Massachusetts and the US Northeast. And the intention is not necessarily to change the names of every place, that has uh, his name, but to engage with the history and the places. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I decided to read that I don't leave out anything, but I'm not a native English speaker, so I hope you understood what I said. <laughs> yeah. So anybody has a question? It took a bit longer, but. There is an element of um, any sort of critique or criticism, whether it's in an app or whether it's in the form, often gets the risk of being um, interpreted as. Promoting the very thing you're attacking. Mm -hmm. uh, Oscar Wilde spoke to say, having the expression, better to be talked about than not talked about. Mm -hmm. So by attacking it, you could be perhaps interpreted as actually promoting mm -hmm. the spreading of its name. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Uh, a lot of critics refuse to attack because they view it. If they see it so bad, it has work that they despise and hate. They prefer to ignore it mm -hmm. because they rather do that than give it out of some certain publicity. Yes, I mean that's a. I guess um, just comes to mind. the The history of Agassiz is very known. He's very known, anyways already. Even if just one mountain would be renamed, nothing would change in that way. But um, it, uh, it, what we want to do is tell the whole history, which is important, which hasn't been told before. That makes it, um, I think, relevant. And, uh, and also it relates a bit to, to Switzerland as well, not talking about their involvement in the colonial times that made them rich, what they still you know, feed of now. So I think it's important to speak about it. And, to, to kind of broaden the, the open up um, and that his story hasn't been told as a whole. That was exactly about not talking about it, maybe because it was not, because he got also in, in um, he lost also his, um, um, what is it called, um, you know, because the problem was he was also religious, so he started to twist everything. He said, for instance, that the white and the black have different Adams and Eves and so on. So he, other scientists felt that he's not very, um, you know, it's not good what he's doing, you know? So I think he suffered then from that as well. But, but I, I also thought about that, what you say, that you, when you talk about it, then people will learn about him but I think it helps also to understand why 
people are racist today still? Where it comes from? Where do, where do they have that, where did they get that sickness, let's say, that called racism and, you know, being biased by others, by the other that way? So I'm interested in the, that kind of the root of where that... Yeah. Yeah. But that, that's almost given in a rationality. I mean, you could say that some human behavior hasn't got a rationality. Yeah, but we are not born racist. I don't know. Well, no, that's... I mean, I <laughs> it's about what you're... Yeah, it's what, what how you're told to respect the other. So that's, I think, we all start the same. Everybody starts the same way. I, that's, what I, that's what I feel. Um, so how you mean with the, how, how do I see the difference? The difference between or? Well, how does that play out, I suppose, in, in practice? Not necessarily different. We're clearly definitely related. Yes. Yes, I think um, relating to the, to the lecture that he gives, yeah. there it's, uh, um, he, he really can say loud how he was thinking, what he was, uh, what was his opinion. And, and it makes it sound like um, um, you know also relating to what's what's today what happens today but um, I think it's also for me in a way of being someone that in his eyes shouldn't exist you know being like he was against mixing of races and so on also putting myself there in the, into the image, that also relates to that kind of comment on that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, that was because Hans Fassler made the initiative of choosing Renti and his uh, explanation to that question was that he felt that he, he was like the oldest in the group and also he didn't feel like um, uh, taking the woman, for instance Delia, to kind of uh, you know, show her like this vulnerable way. Of course you could crop an image and so on, but somehow he seemed like the, um, like the, the elder of those that were there together in this um, plantation. In, in, in uh, South Carolina, actually, that was. And uh, 
what would have been interesting to know is what was his native name, because Renti is was, uh, most probably the name that the master gave, and that uh, also the last name, Taya. Um, and that was also one of the reasons why, very, for instance, Mar Mar um, Malcolm X, the X is that, that and he removes his slave master's name, or Muhammad Ali, for instance, his Cassius Clay was his, basically not his real name, so that's how he decided, or how, that was a way to liberate as well. But um, uh, his family didn't know about that, so that information was lost. And uh, I didn't mention about the poster, the new poster. Uh, this is uh, dedicated to all the uh, victims of the police brutality that happens in America now, which is really, it's like really civil rights movement has never stopped in a way, but now it's kind of a new climax. So um, this is uh, what happens at this moment. That's also a reason why I've want to make a new new uh, version of this of this poster yes thank you